Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where we talk about plant science. I am Tegan and with me is Yoram who is sporting the most beautiful of all haircuts you have ever seen today. Unfortunately for you guys, you can't see that. It's not a visual medium. But Yoram, Yoram wants acknowledgement. Yoram needs acknowledgement. So please at tweet him that he's very beautiful. Yeah, tell me I'm pretty, please. <laughs> <laughs> I need that. Yeah, um, it's been many months um, since November, yep. I think, uh, that I haven't been to a hairdresser. And now I finally have gone to a hairdresser. Um, and I did that because I'm double vaccinated. And I feel oh. safer again in the world. Um, Wait, did you go like? Did you go straight from the vaccination appointment to the hairdresser? Because you know it doesn't work like that, right? No, like- no. I mean, I'm still too early technically. Uh, I had on Sunday. I had my vaccination. Today's Thursday, so technically I should wait two weeks, and this is isn't even a whole week. But I also tested myself and like had a mask on the entire time. But I feel more confident in not dying and immediately spreading a deadly disease to my and family. Do you think the now. confidence is linked to the vaccination or to the new haircut? First the vaccination, now the haircut. Now the haircut mm-hmm. will protect me. The corona is like, this guy is too fly. I can't deal with this. I'm off. Um, Are we still using fly? I am. I'm pretty okay. fly for a white guy, I would say. Oh, no. <laughs> cool. <laughs> what have you been up to in the week? <laughs> Apart from cutting your hair and vaccinating. I mean, that's pretty much what I've been up to this week. Uh, I would like to mention that I was late to the podcast recording today because I was making, I think I'm going to call it fusion cuisine. So I was using like organically grown, hand-picked, frozen British strawberries and I, an Australian, put them into a tiny German death machine called a thermomixer um, with some Russian, no, with some Polish vodka and made sorbet. Nice. I Which was I actually thinking today of having, um, I don't know if it's like a, a slushy or something, but I just uh, whizzing down some uh, watermelon with some ice cubes and some vodka um, and having that as a drink. I thought about I that. I think watermelon might be the win because like, the problem with strawberries is they actually have like rock hard cores of ice. So there's just kind of mm. white fragments throughout my, my slushy slash ice oh, yeah. sorbet. It's not, it's not perfect. It's some optimization of this protocol, I would say. <laughs> really it sounds like a good thing. Like I, I don't mm. have any of the salt. I have plain water tonight. That's what I'm having. Um, yeah. What else? Like uh, I'm. I I went swimming yesterday in a lake. That was really nice. And today I showed my kid very large trains in a museum. That was also nice. Because that's possible again now as well for us. Not because of the vaccination, but just in general now. Some museums have some parts of the exhibition open again, and there's like a big technical museum in Ge- in Berlin uh, that has like these massive halls with filled with old trains, and mm-hmm. so it's anyway never v- very crowded, and now especially not very crowded and um, open spaces, so it feels sort of safe, um, and also like a park, and you can see some trains outside. And my little one was very ex- uh, excited about the trains. Just like running from train to train and calling everything an S-Bahn. Um, <laughs> independent is it something where you can just like get a, a yearly pass and is it close to your house? Can you just easily go there and be it, like, this is no, now not. two hours of my re- relaxation time as my child like touches and licks all of the trains? <laughs> it's not so close to us, so um, it's not really handy, but it, I, I guess there's like a, a yearly ticket or something you could get. My friend's like has that for the zoo, except... Like her kid goes out to watch the chickens, 
like his favorite animal at the zoo is the chickens, which seems. Does he know they have giraffes? I'm not sure. He just really <laughs> likes chickens. Yeah. They got fluffy feet. It's pretty cool. I, I thought about that as well for, for the zoo. Um, so maybe we're doing that as well at one point. Although, like, in Germany right now, there have been, like, a couple of media reports saying that zoos are, like, the worst thing in the world. So I think my friends in Germany will shame me if I go to the zoo. They have a very Why, bad reputation what? right now. Because they're, what, because they're, they're bad for the animals or because of COVID? Yeah. yeah. Be- oh, okay, because they're okay. bad for the animals and they according to i think there were like two or three different media pieces right now that pretty much claim that uh and i'm like i have i haven't seen those i have very little knowledge on this i just saw like some people mentioning it on like different social media um uh, that it, they actually don't really spark this excitement in in kids that we always claim we always say that yeah but the zoos are important for preservation and for the kids to get excited about nature and these journalists they were claiming like look there is no evidence that this is actually true that kids like get their excitement from the zoo they might find it elsewhere and it might sometimes also happen at the zoo but rarely so overall it's like a net negative is according to them and i'm quoting them I, it's not my position. I have no idea. Like, I have no Okay, further. but you, you read the article, right? So, like, did they say... Okay. Like, I mean, that's fine to say, but you need to have studies showing, like, you know, looking at people who became conservation biologists and asking them what gave them interest. And was it a zoo? Was it, you know, a David Attenborough documentary? This, these are the questions. You can't just say, there's no evidence because we haven't looked. That's the kind of a different... Yeah, sure. And that's why I'm saying, like, I don't know anything else. I just know that sort of public opinion-wise... Um, they have a bad rap right now, just like plastic bags for mm-hmm. all have. Uh, so, so I'm not sure. Like, I, I'm, I, I don't really know where I stand as far as like they, they do make me feel a bit uncomfortable. Especially, I went to the Berlin Zoo, and um, when I went closer to winter, I felt quite bad for the animals, especially the Australian animals, which looked really cold. They had like a magpie, which is quite a social bird in Australia, and they had like one of them in a cage, and I felt quite, quite bad for it. Um. But I know, like, in Perth, our so in my home city, our zoo does a lot of uh, breeding of very small marsupials. And I think this is kind of necessary, given that cats are just gobbling them up all across the country. Mm-hmm. But, I, yeah, I, I don't know the... Mm-hmm. Probably not great for the animals there. Is their sacrifice worthwhile for the greater good? I'm, I'm not sure. Like, is it my choice to make, like, that sacrifice? Um. yeah i'm also always torn between like supporting the zoos also like financially with donations and stuff so they can have more money for better enclosures or if it's just prolonging something that isn't that great in the first place and i really have no idea so like i i don't think i should i do think i mean i do think there is this problem with a disconnect from nature for like like overall conservation, we do need to save, you know, biodiversity and, you know, natural environments. And definitely there's this kind of city urban thing where people feel disconnected from nature and then they don't see the changes happening in the world. They don't, you know, notice that things are a bit screwed up right now, which might lead to them lobbying less or, you know, actually enforcing political change. So I, I can see how you need to love, there's this argument, you need to love something in order to care about it and, and yeah. conserve it. So, mm. Yeah. It's just a question if zoos help in creating that love or if they don't. And I don't know. Like, I always just felt sad. Like, there were sometimes animals that I cared for. Um, I, I liked looking at the birds and so on. But even then, I was, like, seeing... Even if There's it's a, a big enclosure, it's still so much smaller than what a bird would fly to in, in nature. So... 
but it's same. Like, I had a bird at home, and it can, like uh, it could fly around the flat, but it was like a, a budgie. And I mean, they can fly mass big distances in the wild, and it had like I don't know seventy square meters or something. So, so yeah, who am I to judge? Anyway, <laughs> that's why we study plants. Segue. Yeah. yeah, plants. You can you can watch plants in a botanical garden with like no ethical dilemma. I mean, there's some some things we touched in the past on like where do these plants come from and so on. Uh, but overall, um, the plants don't suffer as much as like a a, um, a tiger in a small cage would suffer. Yeah, but let's talk a bit about plant science, I think. It's the paper of the week. It's the paper of the week. And this week I chose the paper, um, but I chose it mostly because I thought it would be something that Yoram might be interested in because he has a little bit of a CRISPR fetish, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, the paper was published in PNAS this month. Um, it's called CRISPR-based targeting of DNA methylation in Arabidopsis aliana by a bacterial CG-specific DNA methyl transferase by Goshel and colleagues. I think it's actually Goshel, Picard and college be colleagues because those two first authors are equal contributors. Mm -hmm. So what we need to know before we can dive into this paper is first I think we need to discuss what DNA methylation is and where it fits into the whole gene, gene control thing. Yeah, DNA methylation is this, I think we, we talked about this a little bit in the past. Uh, it's this additional layer of regulation on the genetic code like on the genetic code you have the a the a's the t's the c's and the g's that make mm. up the classic genetic code and they are inherited uh through like mendelian ways and like there's lots of details there but overall this is like the genetic code that gets passed on from generation to generation but you have this additional layer on top of that where you have methyl groups that are actually added to the basis um, that make up this genetic code so to the letters they're like slightly changed in a bit and i imagine that as changing sort of a spikiness of the entire chain in a way that um, some some processes like some interactions with enzymes change in uh, in the way they work very often this leads to a sort of repression so that the code that is methylated is less actively um, read by some some other enzymes but sometimes it changes also sort of positively so that they're read more so most of the time it's repression but not always and so this creates this additional layer on top of the genetic code where an organism can regulate how active a gene is translate uh, transcribed into rna and therefore then made into proteins and so on uh, so yeah and it's a fairly new concept to us um I think we only did like I th now I, I should have looked this up but I think it's around the 90s where we really started looking deeply into this um, and only in the last decade or so we really developed methods to analyze this systematically on a whole genome level um, so now it's become uh, much more a focus of research yeah I like to think of it as kind of like bedazzling of the DNA, but I think yeah. your explanation of spikiness and grouping is a little bit actually more helpful than the bedazzling. <laughs> I mean, bedazzling could also be like some some people are attracted by it, but many people are repulsed by it. So enzymes would like 
go away from the bedazzled areas <laughs> and just look at them yeah, from afar? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> sure, yours was better. Anyway, um, you have an example of how epigenetics can be very important. So as, as your mom said, it can, it can regulate. It basically changes how the genes can be expressed um, without changing the ATCs and Gs themselves. Um, yeah. And you had like an example that was very important. Yeah, I mean, we call this epigenetics because it's on top of genetics, an additional process that can sometimes be inherited and sometimes it can't be inherited. Um, and there was one uh, thing, a story that uh, an epigenetic researcher uh, once told me. It's uh, it's a mutation in banana that's called bad karma. And that's the problem with this mutation is that it was an epigenetic mutation. So farmers would grow bananas, and I think we also talked about this in the past, that they are clonal, rep clonally reproduced. That means you don't grow them from seeds, you sort of take a cutting from a banana, you go into a process called tissue culture, and you grow a new banana plant from that. And it is genetically the same on a DNA code level as the previous um, as the original banana that you took it from and that's how you reproduce them and this is how you grow your bananas but then they would grow these bananas in this way that's how we how we're doing it for for decades and after a couple of years in the field when I would first set fruit they would not develop any fruit at all it would be like very dead plant material and they had no idea what was happening because the the plants where they took the cutting from were fine and now years later the plants are not fine anymore but on a the, when they sequence them, they look the same. Until somebody looked at the epigenetic um, modifications and they realized that there's a difference on an epigenetic level between the healthy plants and the plants that don't produce fruit. And by finding that, they could now screen for that and with that, could during the, the reproduction process of these pl banana plants, they could weed out the ones that would um, not bear any fruit and just keep the ones that are good. And this shows that epigenetics... Uh, can have a very big uh, impact on, on a plant's life and that can lead to a big economical impact for us because um, growing a field of banana plants that don't bear any fruit is very costly and, yeah, not, not economically not a very good idea. It's also, um, epigenetics is often discussed as sort of a way that plants can... And, and other organisms, so um, epigenetics, like modifications are found across all kingdoms of life. Um, how it can be used as a way to sort of rapidly give heritable changes, which might be advantageous if like in a weird environment. So, you know, you're a plant and things are really, really hot and you're like, oh, it's, it's going to be hot for a while. And you can make these modifications and they don't require the mutation to the bases, these A, T, C and G. So it's sort of like a faster way for adaptation that can then be inherited by the offspring, um, which is kind of important. So it's discussed a lot in the context of sort of global change as well. Anyway, um, as I said, like epigenetic changes, including the DNA methylation that we're talking about today, is sort of found across all kingdoms of life. And usually the modification happens to the Cs in the DNA base pairs. So it's the cytosines, the Cs that get bedazzled. Um, in Arabidopsis saliana, it's like around 15% of all cytosines have these methyl bedazzlings that have happened to them, which is, is again, helping to regulate um, the genes that, that the Cs are, are near or in. As an aside, adenine, so A's, can also be methylated in um, plants. It's been found in bacteria, even in some mammals, but that seems to be less common. And today we're just talking specifically about the cytosines. Yeah, a, a researcher actually once also told me, I was at a conference where they were talking about epigenetics, um, that plants are really cool to study epigenetics because 
all of the different kinds that exist of these modifications, they can be found in plants where in other organisms you only find a subset of those. Um, and that's why plants are really cool to, to study this. It is uh, one of the many reasons why plants are cool. <laughs> so we don't only have to look at uh, the individual bases that get methylated, uh, it's actually very important what context they are in. So the bases that are next to them, left and right, uh, because that in, uh, influences the stability of the modification. So how likely it is that this modification will be transmitted to the next generation during either just mitotic cellular division, so when the plant grows and the cells divide, or even doing meiotic cell division when the cells go through sexual reproduction and for, for, uh, form seeds, for example, or egg cells. Uh, and it is more likely that the methylation state is preserved so that they, the plants keep a hold of this additional piece of information if the C's are standing next to a G, so a guanine, if the cytosines are standing next to a guanine in the genetic code. And therefore, um, yeah, it's if we want to, for example, introduce a change, it would be good to put it in these places where C's and G's are next to another because then it's more likely that this is kept. Yeah, and we're mentioning this because this is not the first study that's developed um, CRISPR-based tools to modify DNA methylation. Um, it was done previously, but in the previous attempts, it was done in different contexts. So it was Cs that weren't necessarily next to Gs. It was Cs followed by anything, basically. Um, and, you know, those, again, are potentially less good in that they are less likely to be inherited. Um, so the scientists here are looking to specifically modify Cs that are followed directly by a G. And to do this, they need a methyl transferase, which is just an enzyme that transfers methyls onto these cytosines. Um, but they need one that specifically recognizes CG, like context. And very conveniently, there's a bacteria, which is called Molecutospiroplasma. That was the most Australian way I could have said that. <laughs> wow. Um, and that already has this enzyme. And this is like a really common thing in science where we sort of, instead of trying to create new enzymes, we look around and try to find an organism that's basically already done the hard work for us and just like yoink it out of there and put it into the new organism. Yeah, I find it fun that so often this works. Like you come up with this concept or you have this idea like it would be good to have such an enzyme and then you can screen a library of or just like sometimes only in the computer at first and then in experiments and then you find something that does exactly the thing where like it would be really good to have this and you find like a weird bacterium. Like in this case, these molecules, they are these very small and simple bacteria that um, often live as parasites in the guts or respiratory tracts um, of insects and sometimes even mammals uh, or in, in, in plants. And they have a, a tiny genome, but part of this tiny genome is this methyltransferase, and it's called MQ1. And um, just again, as some context, this is not the first paper that's tried to use MQ1. There's been previous research where scientists have taken MQ1 and they've used it for methylation. They've shown in um, both mammalian cell lines and also in mice. Um, the cell lines are kind of cells floating around in a soupy broth and mice, you know what a mouse is. Um, and they found that this MQ1 does work. It was a bit not great. Like it wasn't always methylating just like Cs in this CG context. It was kind of wandering around the genome methylating things it wasn't supposed to. And because of that, there's also been work where scientists have de developed that MQ1 and sort of tweaked it a bit. And they created a variant, um, which is just called MQ1Q147L, which just means they've, they've changed 
one of the amino acids in the enzyme MQ1. And by making that change, they've made MQ1, like they've trained it to be a little bit better at only methylating the sites that it's supposed to methylate, which is these CG contexts. So they, uh, one of the first experiments they did is using this modified MQ1 um, protein uh, and, and uh, targeting it to a specific promoter of a, of a gene called flowering Wageningen um, and, or FWA. And the gene itself is involved in the flowering time of plants and the promoter of a gene is um, the sort of regular, the main regulatory sequence that decides when this gene is activated and how intensely it is activated. Um, there's many different kinds of promoters. Some of them uh, are pr pretty much always on. Some of them are on at a lower level. Some of them, or many of them actually react to specific inputs. Um, and in, in this case, this promoter is usually silenced um, because it is uh, methylated. So there's a lot of these methyl groups added in the promoter region, and therefore it's not very active um, in, in most of the plant's life. However, there are some plant lines where all of this methylation has been stripped off, and therefore this promoter is pretty much always on. And this leads to a, a phenotype where the plants flower very late in their, in their growth phase. So now you have a system where you have a promoter that isn't methylated, and you have a late flowering plant. And when you methylate this promoter, the flowering time is pushed earlier and you have a, um, an early early flowering plant and so if you grow them side by side you can very nicely see just when the plants are flowering um, if the promoter is methylated or not and now when you test this now with your MQ, mq1 um, modified enzyme you can see if it works if it can add these these um, methyl groups to the promoter you change the flowering time hooray this experiment was successful so this is something we talk about kind of a lot in on this podcast. It's like when you're developing a new technique or a new method, you you want to do a thing, but often you're doing something at the cellular level. So you know that you can you can look for that by by using cellular techniques. You can do sort of um, epigenetic sequencing, um, which which the authors who here do do. But what you want is a visual readout to first see if the thing is working before you do all the testing. Because usually that, that molecular testing is time consuming, it's expensive, it's like much harder than just like watching a plant and seeing when it flowers. So here, that's what they have. They have the, the experimental system where they've got this, this MQ1 and it's going to change specifically at the promoter of this flowering gene and then they'll see depending on when the, the plants flower, if it works or not. So, yeah, they have the MQ1, this variant, and they fuse it to a CRISPR system. And just as a reminder, normally when we think of CRISPR, we're thinking of CRISPR-Cas9. So basically in that, that pair, that CRISPR-Cas9 duo, CRISPR is like looking, sort of searching the genome for, for the location. And then once it finds the location, it kind of like the Cas9 comes along and cuts. So in this case, we want to use the CRISPR bit to look for the location um, to find that promoter of the FWA, but we don't want to be cutting. Um, instead, we're going to be methyl transferring. So they have a CRISPR Cas9, but they've actually like smashed up the Cas9 a bit. They've they've modified that so the Cas9 can't can't be snippy anymore. Um, and instead, they have put this MQ1 there. So we've got a CRISPR looking for things, and it's kind of attached to this methyl transferase. So they get that into the plants, all transformed, everything looking good. You got your Arab Arabidopsis thaliana looking for flowering time. 
nothing happened. In the first generation of those plants, there were no changes in flowering times. So they did the kind of tricky, annoying thing of doing those molecular approaches. Their readout wasn't working. They're like, is this, is this experiment just not working at all? I guess we can check it the hard way. And they checked it the hard way, and they found that two out of eight of their plants actually did have some increased methylation in that promoter. So something, something was happening, but obviously it wasn't enough methylation to stimulate that visual readout. So you need a sort of like an amount of threshold. And it obviously wasn't enough across, across the plants. They also used some like various methods and, and like the different methods all showed that there was, there was methylation happening. So theoretically what it was working, but it just wasn't strong enough. So they needed to strengthen it. And it's something we see very often, right? These, this, the, that we don't simply have an on or off state, but a gradual state. And in this case, they went some steps in the right direction, but it wasn't enough yet. But luckily, there is a process uh, where the methylation amount can be increased just by inbreeding. So just by going through the next generation, um, the plants during their reproduction process, uh, and we don't fully understand all of the details, but they somehow increase where, where there's already, already a little bit of methylation, they add a little bit more to that. And so in the next generation, they could see some early flowering. So w what they couldn't see before uh, was now visible, but it wasn't 100% still. Uh, but then um, they, they removed any traces of the transgene, anything that they had put genetically into the plant, they, they crossed that out. And then they looked for how long they could maintain this uh, methylation state there so through how many generations this was stable and they could see it until um, the generation four so um, the fourth daughter generation of the initial experiment um, which is considered pretty stable in 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 my books yeah so that's like they didn't look past four so we're not saying it went after four they just kind of looked at four and it was still there and this this transgene removal that's basically removing that that crispr construct that that has the the enzyme so like it's not that that kept on coming in and doing the methylation at each generation. It's like that once the methylation was there and then you get rid of the construct, the methylation itself hangs around for many generations. And that's kind of one of the benefits of using this CG context that they used here. One of the problems of the setup now, you guys might have already picked this up, is that actually this site they're targeting, it can be methylated by the plant and it can be turned on and off by the plant itself. So it's possible that they were doing a really great job by coming in and, and putting their, their new construct and it was coming in and doing the methylation, but they couldn't rule out that the plant itself hadn't found a way to to add more methylation to that site because um, it happens naturally. Um, so what they had to do is they had to sort of smash up a different pathway in the plant that is involved in this natural methylation. So basically turn off the natural methylation um, pathway. And that would then be proof that it was their construct that was doing the work and not, not sort of nature finding a way. Um, and they did that. They turned everything off and actually it worked. And paradoxically, which is the word the authors used, it actually worked better um, when the natural methylation machinery was turned off. Um, and they weren't really sure why this was, but they think that maybe the this methylation machinery pathway can also be involved in silencing transgenes. So when that, that pathway is on, it also stops the, the CRISPR um, transgene from being expressed. So it was kind of preventing it from working at full force. 
Uh, but they still wanted more. They still wanted to have um, a more efficient system. And so they took something that's called uh, the SunTech system, um, something that has been developed before uh, by other researchers. And this is a system that's also based on CRISPR, but it is able to put many, um, they call it effectors, so multiple pro proteins to the same side. So the, the CRISPR system so the finds... One. Yeah, it finds the system the, the place that it wants to change, and then a lot of these MQ1 proteins uh, are recruited, uh, sort of co in a concentrated force in this this area, and then they're they're um, methylating there. And this seemed to work much better. They were checking at the first initial efficiency in terms of how much methylation they could see. They could see more methylation. They could see that it was also heritable, so they would see it in the next generation. And they would still see this amplification happening over multiple generations. So with using that system, they massively boosted the efficiency of it, making it um, a much more powerful tool. And what they also checked is when you when you think about like suddenly you're recruiting a lot of these proteins there, what about off-target effects? Is it so effective that it sometimes hits places it's not supposed to hit, which is always a big risk when you want to do targeted changes that you hit something that you don't see at first and you get problems later on. And they checked with this this uh, sequencing method the entire genome, and they could not find any other enrichment in methylation, only in the site that they targeted. So it seems to be only also highly specific, which altogether makes it um, a very good tool. Like it sounds really amazing at what it does. Yeah, so that's that's basically the story. Um, the authors stole an enzyme from a, a simple bacteria. They put it into plants and they used the CRISPR system with this this modified enzyme from the bacteria to specifically target a region of a plant and change the methylation status. And this is used here in this very specific example of the flowering gene. But of course, um, depending on where you target, the CRISPR two could be used basically anywhere in the genome that your little heart could desire um, as long as that site is, is methylated naturally and also as long as we already have the knowledge of what methylating and demethylating actually does at those sites um, but yeah as the authors point out this could be quite a useful tool in altering gene expression for research but also for things like crop um, improvements in the future yeah so that's it Oh, sorry, Yarm. No, no, I just wanted to say, like, as we as we learn more and more about epigenetics, I think we will find more and more cases where there's actually, like, um, a very interesting trade in crop plants, for example, that is influenced by, by some epigenetic control and not by just a straightforward presence or absence of a gene, like, sort of first-level genetic understanding that we had. Um, so I think this... Yeah, maybe we can, we can turn those bad karma bananas back on. Yeah, for example... Or like another thing that I, I, I just remembered that there's like the spikily, a spikiness of holly leaves. I think it's also a story that we told on the blog. It's also um, tr triggered by epigenetic changes. So when the, the trees start out with non-spiky leaves and then if an animal grazes on them and starts eating them, this induces a change in the DNA uh, on an epigenetic level and this then triggers the spikiness of the rest of the, of the new, new, newly growing um, leaves. Um, and so stuff like that. So maybe we want more or less spiky leaves in holly. We could change that at our will. I have no idea how that would be economically interesting, but <laughs> it's technically feasible. <laughs> People, do you guys want smooth holly? Is that is there a market demand for that? Let let us know. <laughs> 
Um, so that was Gosho, Picard and colleagues publication in PNAS that came out this month called CRISPR based targeting of DNA methylation in Arabidopsis thaliana by a bacterial CG specific DNA methyl transferase. And hopefully now you know what all of those words mean. <laughs> this is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Uh, I have a short um, little entry thing. Uh, Sarah on Twitter sent me a link to a photo contest that's happening right now by the Canadian Phytopathological Society um, where everyone can participate. Um, the, the rules are just that you have to take a picture that's uh, fitting into one of the submission categories. That's plant pathology in the field, plant pathology in the lab, microscopic plant pathology, people in plant pathology and what I like best is art in plant pathology uh, and so if you are working in this area or if you have an interest um, check this out we're linking to a tweet um, that has some of the rules unfortunately they don't have a good website up yet with all of the rules but um, if you are checking out the, the tweet that we're linking or contacting Sarah she's also um, linked in the show notes you can find out more and if you are working in Canada you could even take part in the video content Unfortunately, this is only eligible for Canadian researchers, so I won't go into much detail there. But if you happen to be in Canada, um, check this out as well. Cool. I think that's a nice way to segue into some more artsy stuff. So I um, was looking at The Niche, which is a sort of, I think, quarterly magazine that's put out by the British Ecological Society. I just wanted to give a shout out. Firstly, they had a really beautiful cartoon in there. Um, by Holly McKelvey and I've now started following Holly on Twitter. They also have a website www.holly/draws.com and they are a scientist turned illustrator who first did geoscience and environmental scientists, um, lived in Germany, came from California, sort of has moved around a bit, has lots of different interests um, and just does really awesome comics of sort of natural, focus on natural things um, and the natural world. And in the niche this time, they had a um, cartoon that was looking at how um, plants are have these connections with fungi, and also the diff different interpretations of this. So, like this this one way of looking at it is that plant roots are collaborating with each other, and that's sort of a very nice socialist way of seeing it. And on the other side, you can say, oh, it's economics. The plants are sort of trading um, in assets between different plants and between the different species and even the different um, kingdoms of life, the plants and the fungi. But it was just a very, a really nice looking drawing, which made me want to look more into this person. And yeah, their website is, is really beautiful. And I want to spend some more hours looking through all of that, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, um, I have a story that's about uh, ec ecology and um, biodiversity and climate change. Um, there has been a big study done by a group of biodiversity researchers and climate change researchers together, um, which is a first. Uh, or not a first, I'm, I don't want to say it like that, but it's it's rare that they make such a major study um, uh, together. Often you have like, you, you look at the world from a biodiversity standpoint or you look at it from a climate change standpoint and that can lead to problems. Um, 
at least according to the article that I that I read, because um, sure, <laughs> very often um, the uh, policymakers come up with quick fixes for the climate crisis. For example, grow more trees, and that might make sense for just climate change on a short term. Um, but it doesn't make sense for biodiversity protection. Uh, same with like growing um, bioenergy crops and suddenly having large monocultures of like rapeseed or corn um, for biofuel, or policies where um, that increase mining efforts because suddenly you needed a, a lot more uh, minerals for electric car batteries. Um, and so these quick fixes um, that are done for sort of to mitigate the the problems arising from the climate crisis are often, um, yeah, at the downside or at the expense of biodiversity. And so, yeah, there's this article on, on the BBC where they're talking about how, um, yeah, how when we think about mitigating effects from a climate crisis, we need to find a holistic approach that also takes biodiversity into account because otherwise we'll just, like, try to put out a fire by creating another fire that might be even worse than the first fire. Um, and And so whenever we see, like, very simple, quick fix approaches to something as complex as the climate crisis, we should be very and like probably be more careful uh, in the approach that we choose. Um, just <laughs> sorry, I'm circling back, but just to go back to the niche again because I, I I didn't really organize myself enough to finish that thought. The niche also the the front page is also these really beautiful cyanotypes of leaves. And it, so cyanotyping is kind of a thing that I've been a little bit obsessed with um, previously on the podcast. And it also has a link to Anna Atkins, who was one of our very early scientists we talk about. And she's this woman who was, became very famous for doing these cyanotypes. So it's these, these old school blue photographs, sort of like um, sun-based photographs. And she did imprints of algae, which is really lovely. So I kind of... It felt like it had a, an article on plant blindness. It had cyanotyping. It had this link to Anna Atkins. Um, it also had a, a section for children where it was showing different leaf types in the UK, which is something that I'm always sad about that I can't recognize what, like the most basic of tree. I can recognize an oak now, like if it's got those really oaky lobed leaves, but I'm very, I have no skills at recognizing trees in, in Europe which is a bit embarrassing as a plant biology person, a plant biologist, <laughs> even. Um, so I quite liked that it was, it's like, this is what an ash looks like. And I'm now going to try to, I think my homework for myself is to try to learn basic tree types so that I don't embarrass myself when people ask these questions. <laughs> my next story is from the Science Mag, um, where I read about the human food feedback in tropical forests. And uh, it sort of starts with an interesting observation that around human settlements in the rainforests and like ancient old settlements um, you find more edible plants uh, and mm -hmm. this sort of opens up a chicken egg situation there like do humans settle where there is more edible plants or do humans shape the environment to contain more edible plants and probably it's a bit of both like probably it's not a, a clear cut uh, answer in, in one or the other direction but it's very interesting to to look at this that these, these rainforests, these early settles, uh, settlements, they were, and we're talking like 6,000 years ago, um, or sometimes even older, um, we were always changing our environment by specifically picking certain plants and um, caring for them in, in the vicinity, maybe removing other plants that could be competitors because 
um, the people knew already that they like that some plants are beneficial to them. And uh, so there's, for example, the the Brazil nut, uh, Brazil nut tree has been cultivated by indigenous people for millennia and is a dominant species today in the Amazon basin. Um, there is like um, also cocoa, like Theobroma cacao. That's um, been that's been cultivated for more than five thousand years in Central and uh, South America. Uh, there is like coffee, um, palm oil, palm groves, uh, locust beans, breadfruit, uh, many many d plants that are found more predominantly around like old settlements than you would sort of find them statistically distributed in the wild, and. Uh, this in itself is sort of an interesting observation, but it also leads to qu uh, qu questions today. Like, if we change the way that uh, people live to in in sort of in connection to the forest, we first of all lose like cultural traditions and knowledge around, uh, about these plants, but we also lose like people caring for these plants and therefore reduce the chance of these plants surviving in the forest or being as uh, as predominant. They might be then overtaken by other competitors and plus um like uh, unsustainable ways of the uh like living with the forest like like burning or logging um or change like doing agriculture like removing rainforest for agriculture all of that then also has an effect on these edible plants that were cared for by humans for thousands of years and it's just i to me it stood out because i i never thought of the rainforest as sort of a piece of agricultural land in the terms of that we as humans shaped part of the rainforest to me the rainforest has this like very um sort of stereotypical image of being completely wild and like we can live from it but we can't live with it and of course that's like if you if i think about it it's like a little bit naive but um i find it quite interesting that there was like very active shaping of that even though many of these societies didn't develop um the same sort of system systematic agriculture that we see sort of in in um cultures that em emerge from what's the right word from the middle eastern regions where you had like this this dawn of agriculture that had a big impact and many indigenous uh, people didn't have the same way of doing agriculture but they still shaped the environment they still changed the plants that were growing around them mm, so, interesting so yeah it's uh linked it's on science mac um it's a very i i found it a very interesting read and there's yeah research done now uh, more about this this interaction uh do you want to do one of those things where i tell you some experiments and you guess what we're doing yay we really <laughs> need a jingle for that by now it's like what the fourth week in a row <laughs> I, I missed it last week um all right <laughs> you're gonna need some sugar mm -hmm. you dissolve the sugar in water so that you have 50 grams of sugar per 100 mils of water mm -hmm. and then you're going to place it 10 minutes away from an apiary apiary is that where bees live that's the one, and you use it to lure in Apis mellifera, so you're getting yourself some honeybees. Mm -hmm. Once you've got your bees, <laughs> collected your bees, you bring them to the laboratory with them, just to show them where you work, and then um, you you put them in the freezer, to be honest. And, and when they're a little bit knocked out, it gets a little bit non-consensual, you're going to harness them in a 3D printed tube using a small strip of duct tape in between okay. their head and their thorax, so like the kind of body top bit. 
then you're also going to wax them, wax their head so that they're basically waxed into place in their harness so that all they can move is their antenna and their mouth parts. That's not very nice. Yeah, but then you feed them so that mm-hmm. they're not too hungry and you let them sort of have a little siesta, a little nap in, in a dark and humid place for a couple of hours at room temperature. Mm-hmm. Is that already okay. the experiment or is that the setup or is it just like a hobby of the researcher? <laughs> that's planning for the experiment. So that's before anything really bad is happening. Okay, so this is just experiment one. So basically what you're doing is you're training your bees mm-hmm. and you do that by giving them different trials of um, solutions and you're either punishing them by putting salt solution on their antenna and their proboscis, their little tongues, um, or you're rewarding them by giving them some sucrose. Mm-hmm. And you do that over and over again. And I, should I guess what they're training them for? I don't know if you can. I think it's actually a little bit obscure. I just, I just thought that the the length, like the the stuff you have to do when you're you're using non plants, is <laughs> kind of a little bit traumatizing when you read it in details. Like realistically, this is quite a normal thing to do as far as like handling animals, right? But just the idea of putting like a tiny harness on a bee sounds it's a bit bizarre, right? It is, but I've 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 heard in the past that there is um like you can train bees to recognize chemicals and they are quite good at it. Like I know that they did it for like explosives um already like years ago that they would train them to find drugs, explosives, lots of things where usually would um uh usually would use dogs or something sort of traditional um, smelly uh, animal that can smell very well but apparently bees are also very capable in in that but yeah you're exactly right i mean they're not they're not looking for camp for um explosives here but yeah you're basically training to see how well the bees can sense something and to do that you have to use tethered bees <laughs> um, and <laughs> in this case what they were looking for i always wondered like that's so much effort, and then the bee dies within weeks at most. Like, it's a sensor that requires a lot of setup that's not very long term. Like, a, a sniffing dog has a couple of years in it before it sort of gets too old to. Yeah, but to a do sniffing dog also takes years to train. In any case, yeah. um, this, this experiment is a little bit different from that. So, that's kind of an application. This is more pure research, and the, the aim of the research is actually to understand what the bees sense themselves as opposed to using the Mm -hmm. bees ability to sense so in this case they're looking at nectar and nectar you know the the sweet juicy stuff that plants um produce to attract pollinators like bees apart from having like sugar in it it also has a whole lot of other stuff in its secondary metabolites and some of the things that are in there are like amino acids but not the type of amino acids that are used to build protein so like there's 20 amino acids that are used to make proteins, but there's also other amino acids that sort of do other things. Um, the examples used here are beta-alanine, GABA, citrulline, ornithine, and taurine. And people aren't really sure why these non-protein amino acids are hanging around in the nectar. Like some people have said, well, they just exist in the, the phloem of the plant, so in the plant sap, so they just kind of 
make their way into the nectar sort of by default, whereas others have said, well, no, you know, making nectar is a very selective process. It's it's quite deliberate. This doesn't make any sense. And there's not even the same amounts of these, these non-protein amino acids in the nectar as there is in the phloem. So there must be a reason. Other people have pointed out that some of these, um, these NPAAs for short, have their own function. Um, so they're also used inside insects. They can be like neuromodulators and neurotransmitters. Um, they might be involved in things like olfactory processing and learning. So people have sort of put forward this hypothesis that maybe they they do help support the relationship between the pollinator and the plant. Um, but it seems like it's it's still a little bit up for discussion. This this question of what the NPAAs are doing in there. So this is a publication that came in, out in Scientific Reports at the start of this month, um, and it's called NPAAs Do Not Change Nectar Palatability. So bees don't like the flavor more, but they do enhance learning and memory in honeybees. So they reckon that the presence of these MPAs, MPAAs can help the bees like mm. learn maybe where the rewards are, and that's why they were doing these experiments. And the one I told you was the, the learning, the first learning experiment, but they also did a whole lot of different things where like some which sounded a bit nice, so they just had a sort of a, a bee and it got to choose between either drinking like water or water with the NPAAs and that sort of says does does it like the taste of NPAAs more than plain water and they found out it doesn't it doesn't make it more palatable so they also had some sort of nicer experiments in there but yeah I thought it was kind of an interesting topic it's not something I've heard of before and interesting the lengths we have to go to sort of understand these questions in about bees and pollination and pollinators. I have also, like, speaking about diets, uh, I found a story on that sounded to me a little bit dodgy, but it's from a BBC-associated website, so that's why I decided to keep it in here. It's about... What is BBC-associated? It's called... <laughs> like, I'm BBC-associated because I live in Britain. Is it's that a BBC Science Focus magazine. Like, it has the um, BBC in its title. It's the BBC Science Focus magazine that uh, reports about a study that's been published in a journal of uh, in a journal BMJ Nutrition Prevention and Health. So they did a study where they looked at the severity of COVID infections and the diets of people, and they found that people who were living on a plant-based diet had um, seventy-three percent less severe COVID infections, um, and. They make it clear in the study that this is a correlation that they see, not a causative effect. Um, but what they did is that they um, surveyed 2,884 frontline doctors and nurses, so people who are at a very high risk of being exposed um, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus across the United Kingdom, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the United States. And in this survey, they asked them about their diets um, and also like other factors that influence their, their lifestyle, like smoking, physical activity, body mass index, um, coexisting medical conditions. So they tried to get like not a complete picture, but a good picture of it. And in that study, they found that, um, yeah, people who have a mostly plant-based or like a completely plant-based diet they get less severe COVID um, in this study. There are caveats to this, apart from like it's just correlation, not causation at this point. There were more men in the study represented than, than women. So that means that um, this effect might only be like correlate in men and, and less so in women. Uh, and um, 
yeah so it can't be it it doesn't mean that to to stay sort of to 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 be safe from from covid you should only eat plant a uh, plant-based diet but in this study they found this correlation i found it quite interesting did they did they look at how long the people had been on the plant-based diet because i can imagine there's something that, also I don't know. Just, like here's here's my own independent theory that like <laughs> As it turns out, if you you live entirely on beans and don't, for example, eat fresh chicken, you don't need to go to the store very often. I mean, these are frontline workers, so I guess their their main exposure to yeah. to the infection okay. comes That's from their work and not from the shopping. Um, and also, I feel like since I'm like trying to cut out my meat, I have to buy more often fresh um, produce because like I have the feeling like yeah, any broccoli true, true. I keep like wilts within minutes when i bring so it home you buy broccoli in germany that's yeah that's, really on I mean, you. <laughs> that's pretty much on me yeah now here they say um that plant-based diets they uh, can be rich in nutrients like phytochemicals polyphenols carotenoids and so on and they might be important for a healthy immune system but always like in nutritional studies you always have to be very careful it's really hard to control for it these are surveys so these are based on self-reporting so people might also um, report their diets as to be like more healthy or more <laughs> plant-based than they actually are so you might actually um, get like the liars have less severe covid because people are trying to look good on a survey and like no i never eat meat no I'm, I'm, I'm a really good human and they're all ticking these boxes and then they show up in there this is made up by me <laughs> Like you get severe COVID, and they're like, "It's because I ate meat. I was, I swore I wouldn't eat meat, and now I'm being punished by the good." Okay, yeah, I so, haven't read this study, but I'm highly skeptical. I would say, <laughs> I, yeah, I find it an, I found it interesting because of just like you, you see these headlines, and then mm. you read through it, and you realize, yeah, it's it's just a correlation. It could mean everything and nothing at this point in time, and that's why I also want to bring it up because other people might just see the headline and be like oh yeah plant-based diets are healthier when no we can't say that well, what we can say is like well not in, in specific relation to covid study, anyway yeah. not in the context of covid yeah um i think also there's like there's lots of other reasons to to eat a more plant-based diet that are not covid realistically i would say yeah yeah sure um so it's I and don't there are think also it's a lots of other ways to reduce your chances of getting covid if you are not a frontline worker if you do have the ability um and privilege there are other ways like don't like take your mask off and gorge on broccoli because that's not what this study is saying <laughs> <laughs> exactly like don't 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 think you can like go out with with a mask uh, without masks and you you're fine now it won't affect you badly because you're eating your greens um so that's why i'm bringing this up here as a sort of saying like interesting correlation but please stay <laughs> stay stay um reasonable and follow like medical uh advice and not change don't change your diet to protect yourself from the coronavirus and as a reminder by medical advice we mean not our advice yes <laughs> do you have another fun um, fact yeah yarm do you know what chromothripsis is chromo is color but nah. thripsis now nah, go to another chromo let's go to a more biological chromo uh Molecular level, talking about DNA. Yeah, I mean, there's chromatine. The yeah, chromosomes. Yeah, chromosomes, stuff like that. 
Yeah, so I had also never heard of this, to be honest. Um, <laughs> chromothriptus is um, basically when you end up with rearrangements of the chromosomes by basically like getting tons of sort of cuts in the chromosomes and um, really up on the chromosome. So it's this sort of severe catastrophic event that ends up with, you know, lots of deletions or rearrangements of the chromosomes. And obviously it's very, very bad. Um, it's linked to cancer. Also, I would say quite unsurprisingly. Don't do chromotrypsis, kids. <laughs> don't do it, kids. Um, the problem with this <laughs> is that although the kids might be trying not to do the chromotrypsis, um, it might be an off-target consequence of using CRISPR-Cas9. So as we know, um, CRISPR-Cas9 often involves deliberately cutting through both strands of the DNA. That's what the Cas9 is doing, snippy snippy. Um, but if you get lots of those snips, you can end up with massive rearrangements um, of one or even multiple chromosomes and these chromothropsis rearrangements have been linked to things like congenital disease and cancer. Um, and it's just sort of another reason why we should be looking into the new technology before putting it into humans, I think mm -hmm. is kind of the conclusion. So uh, this publication came out in Nature Genetics. If you want to read the full article, it's also on BioArchives, um, the preprint version. So yeah, just sort of another... <laughs> finding of of interesting things that can happen cat fact i have a cat fact that as you might have guessed again has nothing to do with cats but it's on an australian animal and i want to say before we go into this if any parents are listening with their kids we will be discussing sexual organs of animals in the next bit. So if you don't want to have to discuss that with your kids, maybe um, end that episode here. It was fun that you were with us and goodbye. Talk to you next time. What we're talking about today is echidnas, echidnas, echidnas. It's an Australian animal. Tell me how it's pronounced. I want, I want to hear you pronounce it the different ways you think it's possible to pronounce. So what was the first one? <laughs> Echidnas, 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 echidnas. Echidna is the right one, echidna. but I think I like echidna the best because they are also quite shy. Like you don't see them, <laughs> and they 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 try and I mean they're sort of living in the sticky bush, and they have like they look a little bit like a, a crappy porcupine, um, or like a hedgehog, somewhere in between a porcupine, more more like a hedgehog, and they're like sort of hiding in amongst the, the twigs and stuff. So they they are echidnas. <laughs> Yeah. But also echidnas. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Um, and Fucked away. <laughs> the fact that I read about them today is that they have four tipped penises. Their penis has four ends. And <laughs> um, researchers tried to figure out why that is. Um, because they, yeah, they... They are marsupials. Many marsupials, they have a cloaca, so they don't have like several openings for um, the digestive tract and their reproductive tract, but it's all one. That was actually going to be my question was like, did they try to work out why by just continuously only looking at the male of the species? And they're like, we just don't understand. There's four tips. Like, how would this work? And like, nobody bothered to look at the females. And then they're like, look at the female. It's like, it's got four openings. They're like, oh. Yeah. Oh, we should have done that a while back. <laughs> like, the, problem solved. <laughs> they have two openings, um, the female. They have two uteri, 
and mm-hmm. they are sort of a little bit like recessed um so behind your cloaca so but the, the penis length fits to, Wait, to the position of the two uteri but, but, but you got to go into the the cloaca and then it branches off into yeah. the two uteri up the cloaca okay yeah so like the, cool. the cloaca branches off into like the digestive tract and the reproductive tract and so on and um then in the reproductive think- tract it branches off into two uteri um, for for the echidna, um, the the thing is that the like the the females they have two uteri, and the men technically also have like two penis the, the tracks. The male echidna. Each of the two peni open has two openings, and they have some speculations. Um, they think first of all that is can be like sort of a continuous action, so that can, means that they can produce. Sorry, there's no there's no way when an echidna is coming, he's not going pew pew. <laughs> like if you have two, pew 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 pew. that's the only visual I have right now. They Carry yeah, on. they have um, they can sort of ejaculate more often or more continuously, and that gives them a, a selection advantage. Is is one idea that they might have, um, and that's why multiple openings are are an advan- uh, advantage because they can sort of use like one tr- penis tract and then the other penis tract. Um, uh, but apart from that, they yeah they don't have any conclusive final idea what it's. Uh, do the do the eggs like move like like a moving target and they're like <laughs> shooting like one of those shotgun approach games? Like, like it's just ridiculous. Like, theoretically, there's one ho- like there's one channel tunnel. Yeah. So once you've shot, it's gonna go. No, I think it's two channels, like two individual channels. Well, there's two, uh, but then you've got two openings two... for each channel. No, there's. No, I thought you said there's one cloaca branching off into two uteruses. No, yeah, in the, in, the, in the females, yes, in the females, yeah. Yeah. So then the male's putting in his two penis ends, each of which have two and two tips. So why those two tips? It's just like a spray approach, which is a little bit off-putting, just in case the egg is like maybe a bit more on the left or a bit more on the right. Like I just. They say in the article, they're saying by alternating the use of each side, our tame echidna can ejaculate 10 times without significant pause, potentially allowing him to outmate less efficient males. It's a machine gun. Well, I mean, also, again, like less efficient males, if all echidnas have four tips, that's also not a real. It's like, an arms race that ended in a very weird place. <laughs> do some of them also misfire? Like where it's like one of them's like pew, 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 and the other's like pew, pew, pew. <laughs> and like the second one is just like, like. <laughs> What is it when the the gun gets like locked when it's um it's jammed jammed like it gets jammed which yeah. is just not a word we want to use jam um, cool there's, there's, there's lucky, some turtles. lucky echidna female is all I can say what there's, a lucky woman yeah I want to just like the, the two things like first of all there's some species of turtles that have the same thing so they're mm-hmm. trying to figure out like evolutionary how this is linked and um the other thing is that also the the male echidnas have a cloaca so they don't they they only use their penises for fornication and not for urination and that allowed them to evolve such a weird system because uh, otherwise it would be highly impractical and so they can actually store it inside their body um use their cloaca for all of their daily business and only when it comes to reproduction they would uh, actually use like their four-tipped penis um to to mate so really like another really weird animal from australia and i know it's like it's the thing with like once you see a red car you think you always see only red cars um is the same with like (laughs) weird animals in australia i'm sure there are some like non-weird animals or weird animals in other places as well but but, um 
Yeah. We're linking an article on Science Alert. It has a picture, um, little content warning, like if you don't want to see a echidna penis, don't click on the link. And I'm also going to add a little link in here to Isabella Rossellini's Green Pornos. <laughs> There's an episode on ducks that this reminds me of. Um, again, also maybe don't watch this at work, but you're probably working from home anyway, so this is a win. Um, <laughs> it's talking about how ducks have these like weird corkscrew penises, which is also related to the female duck. And female ducks also have this ability to like block, like they have like false ends in their uterus to like that the penis can go into the wrong direction and, like, get stuck in a, in a cul-de-sac, <laughs> which is bizarre and impressive. Yeah, um, yeah the duck penis story is, some, is a story that comes up from time to time. So I think that's it for the show. <laughs> um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. Um, on Instagram and Facebook, it's Plants and Pipettes. That's usually me. And we also have a website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com, where we write blog posts occasionally. And, um, yeah, you can help us by recommending us to your friends and people who might like this show. Uh, if you want to find other ways to support us, there's a link at the end of the show notes. Uh, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Bye.